We want to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of Minority Report Podcast with Eric and Farrell. Each episode, we talk with leaders in business, tech, and media. And today joining us is Lloyd Lobo, who's the co-founder and president of Boast AI. Let's jump in and get to know Lloyd. Lloyd, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm excited to be here. Carol's awesome. We had him on our show uh, a few months ago. And yeah. just the vibe, it just felt like I'm, <laughs> I'm hanging with old friends. That's phenomenal. Oh, love it. Love it. We're thrilled you're, you're hanging with us too. And can't wait to dive in and get to know a whole lot more about you because I, I love your background and I'd love for you to share that with everyone. But first, can you tell us a little bit about where Lloyd Lobo is from? Where were you born and raised? Where do you call home? This is like probably the most complicated background. We talk about like, you know, we're talking about Filipinos, but yeah. <laughs> my parents are from India. I was born in Kuwait because back in the day, as you know, with, with the Philippines and Southeast Asians, they were going to the Middle East, right? To make money because the currency yeah. was so low. Yeah. And so I, I was born and raised in the Middle East. Now, there were Portuguese settlers way back when in India, up until the 70s. And that's how names like Lobo proliferated across India. So my parents yeah. are Catholic with some sort of mixed background, probably. I don't know what it is, not traceable, but I have a last name that's Lobo, which means wolf in Portuguese. Yeah. So that's my background. I was, I was born in Kuwait. I was a refugee of the Gulf War in the 90s, traveled as a refugee from Kuwait to Baghdad to Jordan, made my way to India. And then a few years later, mysteriously ended up in Canada. And uh, not mysteriously, my parents applied for immigration and got into Canada. (laughs) And uh, we worked on this long sailing boat for five years. We made our way after the Gulf War. And several years after the Gulf War, my, my dad realized that, hey, even though my son was born, my kids were born in Kuwait, they don't get a Kuwaiti citizenship. You need to be Kuwaiti by blood. So then their only option is to go back to India. And he felt like after high school, it would be just better to go to the West, like either UK, US, Canada, because going back to India doesn't open a lot of opportunities back then, some 20 some odd years ago. So Mm -hmm. he made sure we immigrated to Canada and and took us there. So that's the history. I got a mix of everything. (laughs) Uh, That's absolutely fascinating. Real life, right? And it's interesting. You know, you're probably not the only one, too. I'm country. definitely not the only one in that background. So it's funny. Yeah. My wife, who I didn't know in Kuwait growing up, is also from Kuwait. Wow. Her parents are also from India. And they also have that Portuguese background. Her last name is Montero. Montero means hunter in Portuguese and Lobo means wolf in Portuguese. We mysteriously met through common friends after we had both our families that immigrated to the West. So, what a story. That's, that's tremendous. Amazing. It also tells you that misery loves company. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it also tells you that real life is so much more interesting than fiction, right? Isn't it? Cool? Oh, that's amazing. What was it like growing up in your household? What was it like, given everything you just shared? It had to be sort of unique lessons that your family could pass on to you and that you experienced as well. It was a lot of unique lessons because in some ways, when you are an immigrant or not an immigrant, but an expat, In the Middle East at the time, you're viewed as a second-class citizen, right? Because you're not local. The Kuwaitis or the Middle East, the people living in the Gulf countries, they're rich by blood. The government gives them a lot of benefits. And for example, if you're just out of school 
And most of the jobs are in the government sector. You can get a job in the government sector, but if, if you want to work in the private sector, the government will augment your salary for just taking a private sector job. So mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets a stipend from the government if you're Kuwait. So we're like seen as second-class citizens in many ways growing up. So there's always this thing that, oh, can you practice your culture openly? Can you practice your faith openly? Can you say or do certain things? There's this concept, it's an Arabic word, it's called basta. It means it means influence. Like everything is done by influence there. It's like who you know, even to get a driver's license or even to get a job or any of that. Mm-hmm. So I grew up accustomed to a lot of that. And so a way of life was making friends with with the locals, with the Kuwaitis, because if you had, if you had local friends, then you could get many favors done. I'll give you an example. I went to there's a sort of sectored schools there. There's like schools for Filipinos and Pakistanis and Indians, and there's no mingling there. So after grade 10, I, I moved to a British school, which was a private school. And I think my, my parents come from humble beginnings. My mom never worked to take care of the family. And my dad raised a whole family on 50K mm-hmm. Canadian dollars, so maybe like 40K in today's. And he retired with that. And, and he made sure we had everything. So they struggled to put me in private school because... They knew that getting sort of a Western education would expedite my assimilation when we immigrated to Canada or or the U.S. But when I went there, incidentally, because of a private school, all the people there were locals, spoiled locals, right? And they would bullied all the time. And I had really long hair back then. And I just like people just bully me and call me gay and all kinds of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I went through till one day I just lost it. And I I beat down one of the bullies. And then they're like, oh, we respect you. You can can be a part of the group. But there's a lot of that when you are not like somebody, they don't Mm -hmm. want you around them. And I experienced a lot of that growing up in Kuwait. And that was a good lesson, right? Because pain is the precondition for growth. And the thing is, my parents are Indian and and in general, like Southeast Asians, they're risk averse from the DNA. It's always like, you know, look at it. The British were in India for many years and then they moved to Kuwait and now they're like subservient to the locals. So it's always like, just take a slap, turn the other way and move, right? Mm. Just don't, don't fight back. Just like do your job and move. Don't take risks. So a lot of like my learnings was play it safe. Don't open your mouth, put your head down and turn and move. And I realized the value of not doing that the first time I I beat down a bully. It was just like when somebody pushes against you, eventually you're going to push back. One of the key learnings is not not so much my parents taught me, but watching their misery was you don't get if you don't ask. If you don't push forward, you're not going to get. If people want to oppress you, that is the norm. It's not, they don't feel like they're doing anything different because. For time immortal, Indians sort of in the Middle East and different countries were taken there as working class, labor class people to do work there, or then evolved into brain trust and whatnot. So if people are treating you a certain way and you keep taking it, they're just going to think it's the norm and treat everybody that way. So eventually, speaking up, I feel, at least my high school, the end of my high school, I felt like I was part of a crowd because I beat down the bully. <laughs> so so that was a learning. It's not, it's not so much what you learned, but what you learned not to do, mm-hmm. right? That sort of lesson formulated a lot of like risk-taking in life and entrepreneurship. It's like watching my parents saying yes to everything and everyone and just taking it on the cheek and turning the other cheek. And that goes on for a while. But I think like there's the other saying, like an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. You don't have to go and like, go the exact opposite but some level of retaliation to say that i hey i exist then 
Mm. And, uh, you know, treat me with respect. And it's a relationship. It's value exchange. It's not meant to be like, you know, slavery, right? It's a value exchange. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I, I want to ask you about, I think we just learned a little bit about like what you experienced and how that influenced who you are and even maybe how you were able to sort of start your career path, right? Tell us a, a little bit about how you got started there because you've got a tremendous background and founding and co-founding and, and really taking some of those risks for others who may be a little more risk averse. You certainly seem to have carved out a, a way to success there. You know, I often tell people, if you want to understand why people are the way they are, you go, go back in their childhood and see see what was happening there. There are two lessons from my childhood I learned. Looking at my parents, they were the most humble, the kind, the most giving people, but they were always taken advantage of. So the one thing I learned there is you become what you ask for, right? Mm -hmm. You become what you ask for. Like you have to ask. If you don't ask, nobody's going to give it to you and you're just going to bow. But the one great thing I learned from there is we become successful by enabling the success of others. So my parents, although like my grandparents grew up piss poor in India, they lived in a slum in India. Uh, my mom had eight siblings, but anytime I'd go there, I'd see like there's people from other towns. They lived in Mumbai and Mumbai is like the New York of India. So people would come by and they'd give them shelter and I'd ask, why are we giving these people shelter? And they're like, you know, take their blessings. I noticed that although my parents were very like calm natured and, you know, they wouldn't engage in sort of conflict and just look the other way. They also made sure that they helped other people. So a perfect example was the war happened in Kuwait. After the war, my dad was an executive chef at a hotel. No sort of European chef. So one of the things was my dad was the sous chef, the assistant to the executive chef. Mm -hmm. and, and the Kuwaiti culture there was, we need to have a white executive chef from Europe, from France mm -hmm. or whatever. We're not going to give a brown guy the executive chef title. During the war, we went to Dubai and somebody took a bet on him uh, that, you know, I think he can be an executive chef. He was an executive chef there. And this hotel in Kuwait was bombed. So the owners were calling him back because he's like, no white chef would come to Kuwait and become a chef there because they're like, it's mm -hmm. high risk right now, just coming off of a Gulf War. And my dad said, I'm going to come and I'll help you because that loyalty, but I need to be the executive chef. Yeah. And it took a lot of pain for them, but they're like, fine, we'll make the brown guy. Today it's changed. The world is changing, yeah. but we'll make this brown guy the executive chef. And when he went there, rightfully, nobody, he couldn't attract anyone. So there were a bunch of, People like in poverty there, like there were cleaners and sweepers and whatnot. He trained them to become cooks. Today, they have restaurants in different places. It's like 30 some odd years ago. So that, that's the second thing I learned. And those two things formulated most of my life. Become successful by enabling the success of others, but also stand up for what it is. Because if you don't ask, you don't get. And so we immigrated to Canada. I studied engineering. Me and my co-founder, were best friends in every project through engineering. After engineering, he got into Johnson & Johnson's engineering leadership program, built software there. And then he did a startup. That startup failed, felt he needed to study accounting, studied accounting, and then ended up at KPMG and said, man, I think there needs to be a better way. After engineering, I moved to the US chasing my girlfriend. She was in med school, followed her through med school in New Jersey, then residency in Philly and then was moving to San Francisco. And my co-founder called me and said, hey, there's hundreds of billions of dollars given in government funding to mm. support businesses, but it's mired in red tape. It's cumbersome to apply. It takes a long time to get the money and it's prone to frustrating audits. Let's automate it. And what had happened there was just before I said yes, I had a hard day at work. 
I was working for a startup and this is very prevalent in startup culture. I call it hustle porn. They work you to like 80, 90 hours. Like it's like modern day slavery, I would say in a way. Like they, they want to like do this, like let's overwork people and, and seeing everyone as lemons. And I used to be in the office till 9, 10. And one day it sends me an email saying, I should like it when you're in the office till 9, 10 o'clock. You're going home at six this week. What's causing you to go home? Your wife is a resident in West Philly at Drexel. And she's in ER. So she's working 100 hours. And I cry. I literally said to him, dude, my parents are in town. They're not from Philly. And that day, like right after that, Alex called me and I cried to him. And I said, if I can build a company I want to work for, I'm in. That's how it started. We worked on a number of products together. We started Boast first as a consulting firm to do R&D tax consulting. In parallel, we built this big traction community. In parallel, we did an accelerator, which failed. In parallel, we did uh, Automatically, which was a chatbot built on top of Zendesk, which failed. Then money got tight. I joined the founding team of a venture-backed company in San Francisco. Two years in, that failed. I'm like, oh, geez, like failure all around, right? Like stress is the precondition for growth. Then took two months off, breather. And we had this boast running as a consulting firm for tax credit consulting. And we turned that into a software company. And literally grew that company. We registered and incorporated in 2017 and grew it to from zero to 10 in that time, 2017 to 20. And then we raised a series A round. But a lot of what you become is because of the bad experiences you have, not the good experience. The good experiences too, but the bad experiences teaches you a lot. Like before we, we, you know, one of the key things we were able to sustain in that time through multiple failures was we build a massive community. We started traction. It went from doing weekly events and meetups to becoming a big conference to now having 118,000 subscribers. But I think that philosophy that you become successful by enabling the success of others is what sailed us through. But at the same time, asking for things and not taking no for an answer, sort of taking risks. It comes, those two things in a direct correlation to the childhood. And I really appreciate you taking us through that, Lloyd. And I, I want to go back to, to one thing I think you touched on a little bit there. I, I feel like you being a founder and starting your own businesses, right? I think part of your motivation for that is so that you can set the culture of the company that you want to be a part of, right? Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I think as a founder, if you don't set the culture in your company, I mean, the first few people, it's like, you have an idea. It's not a company yet, right? It's a few people, like, let's say we decide we come up with an idea. What's going to form the working relationship is our collective backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And as you add more and more and more people, they bring something new. And we talked about this, I think, a few months ago, Carol, where we said culture fit is the biggest BS trope in the history of business. I got a lot of flack for writing that on LinkedIn. It's not about finding your drinking buddies or who you're similar to. Like, you know, oh, do I do the 5 p.m. beer o'clock test? It's about who can add to your culture. You don't grow by doing the same thing. You grow by bringing on new things. So yes, you align on values. You have certain core values as a founder and you want to bring people who align with those values, but they can have their own values too that they add on. And you may have like, for us, one of our key values is empathy and giving, the art of giving, like enabling success by becoming successful by enabling the success of others, help enough people get what they want. 
And that informs everything. Like we do this traction community in years, we took no money and we still did events, right? And that is the key thing because our customer is the founder, CEO of a technology company. We get them government money, but they need more than that. They need resources to become successful. So we mm-hmm. host a lot of events and give them content from growth to marketing, to hiring, to culture. And they come to our events and then they say, hey, I met my investor or I met a key hire. Those things matter so much more than anything else. When you aim for culture fit, you build a click. When right. you aim for culture ad, you build a community. Yeah, I really love that. And you know, I, I agree with you on the culture fit versus versus culture. I think that is super important. I'm curious to to hear from you. I want to I want to sort of take this conversation a step further, right? Like there's there's been a lot of talk in corporate America specifically over the last 17 months about diversity, equity and inclusion and what more companies can be doing to support employees and supporting society as a whole. And I, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the state of DEI and and what you think companies should be doing to better the world that we live in. Yeah, I think one of the key things, and it's very interesting because I recently had MailChimp's chief product officer, who you should definitely invite to the show, Natalia Williams. And she is phenomenal. And she's very passionate about the topic. One of the key things I realized is that you have your values as a company. And as early founders, if your value is, <laughs> I just want to hire people who are like me, that's it. That's the company you're going to build. That's the kind of company you're going to hire. So I think the one thing is everyone should write down their values, like early founders. And then when you hire, you hire based on those values and you measure people on those values. That's number one. In terms of recruiting for diversity, here's the key thing what people don't realize. Companies with diversity perform better. And that's a fact. It's not Mm -hmm. saying that immigrants are better than non-immigrants. With diversity comes the ability to fight adversity, right? Like we Mm -hmm. all come from interesting backgrounds. If you hire everyone who's privileged, who's gone to an Ivy League school and then gone to a, a, a big four consulting firm to work, if you hire that, then that's it. You know, like Mike Tyson says, right? Everyone has a plan until you get punched in the face. That means... (laughs) That means the ability to react to punches consistently is a skill that I think comes with adversity. And people with diversity, just by nature of life, have had the ability or opportunity to deal with adversity. And you need that in the business. Right. Because how often does it happen that you write a business plan, you go get funded, and everything plays out that way? It's it's impossible, right? 99% of the companies fail. So if you want to do service to your company, you need to hire for diversity. And there's a few ways to do that. One is having inviting job descriptions, just something very simple. How often do we write job descriptions that anchor on the gender, right? Mm-hmm. Like I look at job description all the time. The tone is very gender specific. It's like removing bias for gender, removing bias for, for race from just the job descriptions, making it more inviting. But then working with local communities to hire, right? So like there may be Hispanic communities or black communities or brown communities that you can go and partner with those organizations. Like if somebody wants to do a diversity hire or like want to attract people from a certain pool, they can come to, 
you know, minority report. Be like, hey guys, can you can you run an e-blast and like, can we sponsor you guys? Mm-hmm. Like, who should we talk to? Like having conversation is a way to drive diversity and you got to be deliberate. It's not like four dudes sitting in a conference room like, oh, we're going to do diversity. It doesn't work that way. You got to right. make deliberate action, right? Mm-hmm. Find all the communities. It's like marketing, right? You have your ideal customer profile. You yep. figure out where they eat, breathe, drink, sleep. Then you create content to attract those people to come to your business. Recruiting is just like that. Mm-hmm. That's tremendous insight. You mentioned the word adversity. And I think it's interesting as we talk with so many people having different experiences. I want to ask you about your experiences and your experiences with discrimination when, when faced with them. Talk to us a little bit about some of those moments and how you overcame those in a professional setting. You know, the thing is, uh, I find it hard to even explain. So the one thing I want to say is, I am very fortunate that I moved to Silicon Valley. Mm. I was just having a chat with the CMO at Marketa, which went public at $16 billion. And I was telling her, her name is Vidya. She's also got an Indian background. I'm like, brown people are no longer the minority in tech, especially in Silicon Valley. I think if you're a person of color, like if you're a Black person or you're a woman, you're more likely to get discriminated in tech than you're a brown person. Because I think brown people all studied computer science and they were heavily attracted to Silicon Valley. But in different settings or sectors, maybe brown people are more discriminated against. But you know, that's my tech sort of experience. And, and generally, the tech community is very embracing. Because if you're not embracing, then you get sort of canceled in a way. But just growing up, Discrimination, like living in Kuwait, I think the most discrimination I faced was growing up and living in Kuwait. Mm. It became second nature. And you know, when you just don't care, where you stop reacting, mm. that's when you realize like it doesn't matter. Anymore. You're going to slap me, whatever. I'm not just not going to react. You're going to spit in my face. I'm not going to react. Mm. I used to go to the, the school restroom and then I'd find like people just dump garbage, right? On me. Like mm. one day you have a blow up. But then if it keeps happening, you just stop reacting and, and you walk on, right? And that's what my parents are like, just don't react, just move mm. on. Because if you react, maybe you may have it worse. Now, I reacted. I think standing up is really sort of important. In the workplace setting, I don't know. And I, I think it would be wrong of me to attribute it to race or color, the workplace discrimination. But early in my career, right after I went uh, graduated from university, I was at a job. And I felt like they were they were throwing like uh, foam balls on my head and everything else. I was, I think, one of the only brown dudes there. And I just felt like people talking to me in an accent, saying I smell, like those kinds of things. I don't know if like, you know, young people are naive too. I don't know. I, I don't know like how to attribute that. Mm-hmm. But I just tuned out. I'm like, I'm here to do a job, right? And then what happens when you're in a culture like that? You just leave. I left. I came to the U.S. Probably the best decision ever. If that was my most fantastic job out of school in Canada, I would have never been in the U.S. Mm-hmm. I would have never started a company. Those things, like, you know, a lot of us get hung up on like, yeah, it's just, you can change you. You can't change the world. If you want to change the world, join a movement. <laughs> you need many people like you. And so it's like a lot of times in the workplace, what happens is people feel discrimination and then they up and leave, right? They're like, you know what? I'm going to tell HR, but HR has got the company's back. Like how often do you feel that? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just talking about from my perspective. I'm like, do I complain to HR? Sure I can, but is HR going to really have my back? Like how often does HR have the employee's back? I don't know, Carol, Eric, 
Yeah, I mean, my experience has been opposite of yours. I think in a, in a lot of my experiences, HR has had employees back. But again, er- everyone's experience is different. You know what I mean? Exactly, right? So like, it, it also depends on the company and the demands of the company. You're a large right. company, they have this focus, but you're a small company trying to keep lights on. And then they have an HR person. The HR is more like a recruiter, right? They're, they're listening, but they're not sort of actively listening. I think in many cases, and this is the unfortunate walk of life here. In many cases, I feel personally that I've had to leave companies rather than get into this whole like, and this is the unfortunate thing. Mm-hmm. So I've, I've like distilled, what do people want, right? I want connection, right? A sense of connection community when I'm at a workplace or anywhere. I want autonomy. I don't want people micromanaging me. I want mastery, meaning I want to just get better at what I do and achieve new things. I want purpose. There has to be a sense of purpose in the company. I want to feel energized coming into work every day, and I want to be recognized. I call it the camper framework. I'm going to write a book on it, camper. (laughs) If you you have the CAMP, like connection, autonomy, mastery, purpose, energy, and recognition, you'll have happy campers for life. I, I often feel like, why don't companies design their culture or their whole employee onboarding, like the experience of an employee, the employee experience, like they design the customer experience, right? You can use live intent for a customer experience. Why isn't employee experience designed that way? Like you hop on a Peloton, they've done a phenomenal job. The thing is viral, it's sticky. Why? Because you see a bunch of people, so you feel a sense of connection. You have a sense of purpose and you know what you're leveling up. So mastery, mm-hmm. you're energized because somebody is there and just evangelizing you. You're energized and you're recognized as you level up, right? Isn't that what people want? <laughs> yeah, no, it, it is a really great point. But I also feel like to what you're saying, when you see a company where their employees are super happy and employees are staying there for a long period of time and employees are recruiting their their friends to join, right? you probably have that experience more than you don't, right? I think it's when you don't have the experience or maybe when people have experienced uh, situations like you have, right? Like then that's when you you see the revolving door, people coming in and out of the organization, you know? Exactly. And that's the worst thing. And it's not like any of us are perfect. We've seen it. But I think I often say this, if you fall in love with your customer and make them successful beyond your product or service, and if you do that, you'll build a community. And if you build a community, you won't be a commodity. But all these sayings are more towards the customer. If you treat your employees like your customer, and if you help them and treat them with love and help them grow, they'll treat you with love and help your business grow. Nothing happens without people. And one of the key philosophies of people is the more adversity they've had to deal with, (laughs) the better it is for your business because stress is like bodybuilding. You lift weights, you get strong. If, If that wasn't the case, then everyone pushing boxes in construction would look jacked like Arnold Schwarzenegger. They don't because they've been doing the same weight. So you got to keep increasing the weight to grow. And which just says in life, stress is the precondition for growth. And if you want to find people who've been through a lot of stress, you got to find people with diversity. Yeah. It's not and a bunch of khaki wearing Ivy League people. <laughs> and one thing that we're going to hold you to is when you write that book, you got to come back on the podcast to, to promote it when you write Camper. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I will. I will. Lloyd, where do you draw inspiration from? Like you, you talked a lot about earlier on the humble beginnings, being a refugee, moving to Canada, coming to the US, starting a bunch of businesses, right? The success you're having now. 
What sort of keeps you going? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Where do you draw inspiration from? I draw inspiration from people. My biggest superpower is relationships. I often say life and business is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Relationships transcend companies and your passion will transcend companies. So if you're treated crappy in one organization, but you really love SEO, you're going to do SEO somewhere else. Mm -hmm. right? If you have some really good buddies there, you're going to have drinks with them after the fact. The relationships and passion transcend companies. I draw my inspiration from everyday people because I think... People are unique and they have unique experiences. Often you'll say like, oh, Elon Musk is great or Peter Thiel or all these people. They're great. And there's a lot of learnings from them. But there's a lot of things they don't share, right? Like it's not written in books. Like Elon Musk is not going to tell you his deepest miseries that he's gone through. He's not going to sit and write a playbook for you. So how do you learn? You learn by getting inspiration from people you meet every day, from your gardener to your coworker to you know, somebody at the grocery store, like just striking conversation. And I often get asked this actually, just, just the other day I was at a theme park with my kids and a friend and she's like, you're really an asker. You just ask people rather than, <laughs> than, than sort of just read the map. And I'm like, asking has been the biggest driver for my learnings in life. And it's something I learned from my mom. Like the person is standing there, just ask them and strike up a conversation. You get to learn from them a little bit and you get better and better. I have this dirty habit. I don't look at the map. I'll just go and strike up a conversation with somebody. And it's from my mom. It's just asking. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so I like drawing inspiration from people. I love to talk to people. I even tell my team members, don't go to sleep at night with stress. Like download mm. it to me. I'd rather give you an answer so you can sleep comfortably than you going to bed with that stress. People have all kinds of ideas and inspirations. The way I see it is by the time a playbook is written, many cases, it's, yeah. it's already like too late, right? Yeah. It's not the playbook. It's a sort of the deeper meaning or the strategy underneath it. And you can only get that by talking to more and more and more people. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Fun question. I love asking every guest we have on the podcast, which is to give us the top three apps that you use on your phone, but you can't name email, calendar, or text messaging. Okay, email, calendar, or text messaging. So right. I'm gonna pull up my phone right now. Yeah. Let me just see. Let me just check it out. LinkedIn. I'm just looking at it here. What are yeah. my top apps? And it, it is LinkedIn, it is Slack, it's WhatsApp, it's Spotify. Those are the top. Well, ones. look at that. That's perfect because you just said you love communicating and talking to people. So LinkedIn, <laughs> WhatsApp, and Slack right there. <laughs> and then and then Spotify for music. There okay. you go. There you go. Love it. Love it. Well, Lloyd, can't thank you enough for hanging with us and dropping some knowledge and your experiences. We covered a whole lot, man. Thank you so much for your insights. Just remember connection, autonomy, mastery, purpose, energy, recognition. Camper sounds pretty cool. A lot of our audience likes to stay in touch and, and follow you. Where can our listeners stay in touch or, or follow you at? I'm probably the only person with my name because my name is spelled with an E. So double L-O-Y-E-D, Lobo. I'm very active on LinkedIn. So if you DM me or if you add me, I'm active on LinkedIn. I'm not so active on Twitter. I, I haven't figured out how to say things very concisely. <laughs> I'll learn that sometimes. <laughs> but LinkedIn works. And then that's the best way to, to stay in touch. Awesome. Well, thanks, Lloyd Lobo. Again, thanks for hanging with us. And everyone, thanks for spending some time with us for another episode. You can find more episodes where you find all of your audio and video. Just search Minority Report Podcasts and look for the logo. Thanks again. <laughs>